Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and today I'm talking to Ken Oletta from The New Yorker. Ken is a longtime chronicler of big media personalities, big media companies. Famously, he wrote a profile of Harvey Weinstein in 2002, back when Weinstein was the peak of his powers. We talk about that profile, the 2017 reporting in The New Yorker and The New York Times that brought Weinstein down and eventually brought him to jail, and why Oletta is writing about Weinstein now in 2022. It's a good discussion. You will enjoy it. Here is me and Ken Aletta. I'm here with the New Yorker's Ken Aletta, reporter extraordinaire and author of Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. We've talked about Harvey Weinstein before on this show a couple of years ago. Let me start with this question. Harvey Weinstein was well known as a, a sexual abuser, sexual assaulter for years. That was finally uncovered in 2017, formally in print by the New Yorker, the New York Times. What do you want to do with this book coming out close to five years after those those first initial Weinstein exposés came out? Well, I mean, I think the, the books that Jody Cantor and, and Meg Tui and Ronan Farrow did were extraordinary, and they deserve all the credit for exposing Harvey Weinstein and getting women to feel comfortable enough to come forward and talk about how he abused them. This book is meant to do something different. It's a biography of Harvey Weinstein, and it aims to try and understand and decipher what made him do the monstrous things he did, A. What were the causes of that? B, aside from that, this guy had an extraordinary movie career, and, and look at what was his talent to do those kind of movies. What was the relationship with his business partner for all those years and his best friend for all those years, his brother Bob? And what happened in that relationship to eventually lead his brother Bob to fire Harvey in 2017? So, and 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 lastly, uh, if if people would speculate and whisper about Harvey abusing women, how come it never came out? Who were the people who enabled this kind of behavior? And what was the culture of silence that enabled this kind of behavior? And is that peculiar to Hollywood, or is it similar to what we're seeing with Republicans, say, in, in, on, about January 6th and Donald Trump? This idea of wanting to understand who Harvey Weinstein was and is as a person, I'm sure you gave us a lot of thought. I'm sure this, is, this question has come at you already and will come at you as you're talking about this book. I assume there is the, an impulse on some people to say, on the part of some folks to say, I don't care what kind of person he was or the fact that he had an overbearing mother, as you described, sort of right out of Philip Roth. He was a horrible person. He did horrible things to people, and we don't need to humanize him. And by doing that, you're sort of diminishing the the harm that he did. How do you think about balancing wanting to tell a fuller story with the idea that you're sort of softening the edges of a monster? If if every biography was just a, portrayed a stick figure, you wouldn't want to read it. People are complicated. 
and Harvey Weinstein is complicated. It doesn't negate, to, to talk about his talent and the good movies he made uh, is not to negate and, and, and erase the abuses he performed. And, and we could do both, it seems to me. And, and one of the things you want in a book is that kind of complexity, You're writing about human beings. You're not writing about stick figures. So I have no regrets that I'm trying to understand who this guy was and, and, and portray him in his fullness. Ken, how do you report a story like this? It seems like a couple challenges. One, you've got a guy accused of, of doing terrible things who's famous for bullying the press and controlling what's printed about him. Two, there's a ton of stuff that has been written about him, including a definitive profile you yourself wrote back in 2002. How do you go about finding new stuff, and how do you how do you deal with Harvey Weinstein as a character that you want to report on? Well, first of all, you you, you wind up talking to I talked to over two hundred people, so things will come out. For instance, his, what he was like as a young man, or what he was like when he went to the University of Buffalo, um, and some of that is very fresh and new. For instance, I did not know that it, that in junior high school and high school, Harvey was a nerd. He did not date very much. He did not abuse women, the best I can tell, and his friends who grew up with him. He had to wait till he got to college for that. It, actually, even then, he didn't, I can't find evidence that he abused women in his first three years of college. He dropped out at the end of his junior year, and he became a very successful rock promoter. And that's when Don't Be Alone with, with Harvey Weinstein became right. a thing. And, and only when he had power did he begin to abuse women. And that began a lifelong abuse for four decades. Uh, but I, I could find no evidence, and that, that was fresh to me, that Harvey was an abuser before he became a successful rock promoter. And then you look at, you try and explore, what was the reason for his success, say, in the movie business? And you find various things. You find out that he really did read scripts and, and knew them. He knew the script was central to a successful movie. You find out that he was, and some of this was already known, he's a very successful marketer of his movies. Uh, you also found out that he used his power to attract, and his knowledge of movie and movie history, to attract talented people to work with. You also find, by the way, which was kind of stunning to me, that Harvey had charm when he wanted to turn it on. And that was part of the reason for his success. He could woo and cajole and, and, and entice people to work with. Yeah, he could flatter you one day and, and harangue you the next and flatter you again and offer you a book deal right. or an option. And in terms of talking to him, you obviously talked to him a lot when you wrote that initial New Yorker profile. How much of what is in the book is drawn from those conversations? And, and did he talk to you for this book? The only thing that's drawn from my 12 or so hours of interviews in 2002 when I profiled him for The New Yorker, ends in 2002 in the chronology. So I used some of that material for his early years and, and for his early uh, work at Miramax, uh, but it ends there. Subsequently, Harvey was very upset with my 2002 profile, so he chose not to cooperate initially on the book. But everyone else did, particularly his brother, who was, is a very instrumental part of this story, and obviously knew Harvey better than, than anyone else did. But Harvey from prison then decided that he would cooperate. And initially he had agreed to interviews with me, and I tell this story in the latter part of the book, 
I have a whole section on that. We agreed to talk to me on condition he said that I only ask him about negative things and, and so he could respond to any negative quotes about him. I said, no, I will do that, but I want to be able to ask any questions I want. After a couple of months of negotiations with his representative, he agreed, and then the day before our scheduled interview, his L.A. lawyer, Los Angeles lawyer, called and said, Ms. Oletta, I cannot allow my client, who's going on trial in L.A., to cooperate for an interview that material may be used in the trial out of here. I understood that, so it was canceled. Harvey then subsequently agreed to answer questions via email, which I include in the book. You lay out in this book quite clearly sort of the control and power and leverage Harvey Weinstein had in his most powerful years in the movie business and how that diminished. But even as he's on trial, he's attempting to spin people and he, he wants to speak out in court and defend himself and has to be told by lawyers he can't and shouldn't do that. Now that he is convicted, that he's in jail, do you think, do you detect that he has any different sort of thought about how he wants to communicate to the outside world? Or does he, is he just sort of resigned to the fact that you and others are going to write about him at this point? No, I don't think Harvey's ever resigned to anything. Uh, the problem is, does he have, what are his alternatives? Mm -hmm. and he has very limited alternatives. He's sitting in a wheelchair in a Los Angeles jail. He has no internet access. He can talk to only select people, mostly his family or those who talk to him, most don't, and his lawyers and his PR representative. So he's very frustrated. He'd love to get his story out. He tried several times during the trial and just and prior to the trial to speak to the press against the advice of his attorneys. And it was a disaster for him. He speaks to the New York Post at one point thinking, well, they've been really sympathetic to me. They've done right, they've right. done solids right. for me. And then they just, the Post eviscerates him because at some point, even the Post will turn on you. And he tried to spin them. By the way, he tries to spin me in the emails. He, he says at one point, he denies that he ever asked his brother for, for money. And yet I have an email from his brother's between them saying that he did ask for money. So Harvey still tries to spend and not always successfully. I, I do want to talk to you about sort of Harvey Weinstein's place in the movie business, because I think correctly, people now associate him with being a, a terrible sexual uh, abuser. But it is interesting to think about sort of what he did in the movie business and, and, and whether there's a role for people like him in today's streaming Netflix age. What was the thing that he had, had accomplished prior to being taken down as a sexual assaulter? What was his major, major accomplishment? Miramax, uh, the company he formed and started with his brother, basically helped propel the independent movie business and helped propel movies like, like Sex Lives and Videotape. Uh, into general success. And just to, to, to underline this, an independent movie back then meant what? These were studios that were looking for foreign films, for films about something, for, for good films, and, and not for, for sequel films or big, big... For films that weren't being picked up by major studios and financed yeah. by major studios. And the major studios were looking for those, those big star driven movies that, that you can have multiple sequels to. And Harvey was doing, he was doing foreign films uh, and independent films and, and giving Quentin Tarantino his first break. So he was, he was breaking through. And you could argue today, when you look at, at, at the Netflix and Amazons, the, the foreign films that he helped pioneer uh, into American success are, are now on those platforms. 
Yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of what I wanted to get to. I mean, by the time Harvey Weinstein um, is taken down sort of officially in the New York Times and, and then the New Yorker in 2017, his power is greatly diminished. Is that because audiences didn't want to watch those movies anymore? Is it because other people had figured them out? And then I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, right now, those the kinds of movies that Harvey Weinstein, that Miramax, and there was also Dimension Films, his brother ran, which is horror, which is a separate group. Those movies are either not getting made, they're certainly not getting put into theaters. Um, I mean, so is there a is there a sort of an analog for a Harvey Weinstein now, or is that role just gone in today's media landscape? I, I don't know if there's an analog. Part of the problem, you mentioned movie theaters, that's part of the problem. I mean, if you have a multiplex with five theaters, they want to put use three or four of those theaters for a Tom Cruise movie. Mm-hmm. So it crowds out the kind of movies that Miramax helped pioneer. They weren't the, the first independent movie, and they were not the last. There were others that were doing you know, interesting movies, but, but Miramax was really a dominant force in the independent movie sector. Right, but so now there, there are people making them, there are independent producers, and right. there are outlets for them, but they're streaming. And again, you've got people like Jason Blum, who's well-known. Again, he really makes his money in horror. Um, there's a through line there, but there isn't sort of a, an A24 is the closest to a Miramax like studio where the brands represent something. Um, am I missing something? Is there anyone else no, out no, there? You, 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 what, what you're saying is, is very important. Branding. Miramax had a brand. If you heard it was a Miramax movie, you knew it was a different kind of a movie. If you hear it's a Disney movie, they have a brand that, that you mm-hmm. know what it is. And Warner Brothers, Paramount, they don't have a brand that's identifiable as, as their type of movie. At one point when Weinstein is trying to defend himself, he says, the idea that I was this powerful person in Hollywood, that's a, that can't be right. My company was always tiny compared to Disney and Sony, et cetera. He's, he's right, literally. So how did he amass that power? How, how would someone who was making boutique films as a sidelight, you know, and his most powerful, he was sort of an arm of Disney, but he was a smaller arm of Disney. How did he amass that power? Well, well first of all, he, he, it's not true they didn't have real power, mm-hmm. as he claims. Disney acquired Miramax in 1993. But in the mid and late 90s, Harvey was distributing and producing more movies than any other studio was, even though it was just Miramax. Mm -hmm. So he had enormous power. Secondly, if you're a a serious actor or director, you want to do movies that that has a shot at Academy Award, that, that, that enhance your reputation. Harvey Weinstein had great appeal for those talented actors and directors who, who would say, hey, my God, I'm not going to get a shot doing a, a, a movie for a big studio, I, I think, unless it's, it's a rare kind of movie they're going to do. But I have a real shot at that kind of success if I do a Miramax movie. And by the way, I'm doing it with a guy, Harvey Weinstein, who knows movies, who knows the history of movies, who reads the scripts and takes a hand in the casting. So he's, he's, he really cares about He's not just a suit. He really cares about content. Right. So even though his box office grosses weren't going to be as high as a Disney or a Universal, the fact that he was making a lot of stuff and a lot of it was prestige gave him that power within Hollywood. It did. And also, by the way, his blunderbuss. I mean, he was willing to use that power in an often crude way, you know, insisting he get this actor or threatening 
people, you know, that was Harvey's way of doing business. Harvey was saw himself as an outsider. He set up Miramax with the New York headquarters, not at Los Angeles headquarters. And he was fighting against them, as he called it. He was almost kind of paranoid, actually, their approach to the film business. And he just fought these people. And he created a sense, join us, the underdog. We, we, we can do the kind of movies you care about, dear actor or dear director. And these big guys out in Hollywood don't care about. We're the pirates that were, were you know, St- Steve Jobs-like. We'll be right back with Ken Aletta, but first a word from a sponsor. And we're back. Like I said, well known that he was uh, an unpleasant or worse person. And after 2017, you heard from all sorts of people who knew directly because they were abused by him or they facilitated the abuse. And then there was a slew of very well-known actors, producers, studio heads, all of whom work closely with him, all of whom knew at least as much as you and I did about his reputation. Also, this isn't the guy I know. I don't understand. Or, or they wouldn't issue any statement at all, but they all profess that they didn't understand. Is it plausible that people at the top of, of the Hollywood pyramid um, literally didn't know what was happening? Happening in terms of sexual abuse? Yes. I mean, I find it hard to believe. I mean, there's no question that if people didn't know, they should have known. I mean, when Gwyneth Paltrow and other actresses say they, their agents knew, yet they continue to send young actresses to Harvey's mm-hmm. hotel suites, and they would get reports back from those actresses of, of Harvey's attempted abuse or real abuse, and yet did they report it? Did they call out? No. I mean, the first person to come forward with a claim, public claim, that Harvey Weinstein abused them didn't happen in 2015 with the Italian model, till 2015. And he had signed multiple non-disclosure agreements with women before that. One of the things that, that frustrated me, when I had heard rumors that he had abused women in when I was doing my profile in The New Yorker in 2002, and I went to the courts in England, and I went to the courts in the United States, and I said, how come I can't find evidence I know women complain, but where's where's the evidence of it? And that's when I realized what he had done. If you're willing to spend a lot of money to shut women up and get them to sign a non-disclosure agreement, you send your lawyer to them and you say, we will give you X dollars Mm -hmm. if you sign this piece of paper. And by the way, you don't get a copy of the paper. And by the way, the paper doesn't go to a court. It's a private document that my lawyer will hold. So it never got to the courts. But that's talking about silencing women, usually at the the most vulnerable women in in the industry, at the bottom of the pyramid, preventing them legally from speaking. That's different than Disney doing business with them for many years or Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, saying, I, I don't know this this guy. I don't, I've never seen any evidence of this. He immediately turns his back on him once that becomes public. It seems hard to imagine that the men running Hollywood um, didn't know who they were doing business with. I mean, I find it hard to imagine. I asked, I pressed Disney on this. I pressed Many executives, they claim they didn't know. Then the question becomes, should they have known? A, that's one level, the people outside Miramax. The second question, it seems to me, is what about the people who worked with Harvey in his company? And there's lots of evidence, which I produce in the book, that many people there knew uh, that he was abusing women and, and shut their eyes to it. And some of whom are still in the industry, uh, publicists, other folks. I mean, one of the reasons I subtitled the book is The Culture of Silence is because of that. Let's talk about that the profile you wrote. You and I talked about this a bit uh, in 2019, but you wrote this amazing profile of, of, of Weinstein. I remember 
talking to someone in the industry about about it. I was in Hollywood at the time writing a, a story, and they said, "Oh, this is like a delicious seven layer cake." I just I just savored every bite. But you weren't able to print that that he was accused of of sexual assault, and you said you didn't have the documentation. How often since 2017 have you replayed sort of that scenario? Is there something you think you could have gotten to but didn't or was this just a matter of this will sound simplistic of getting someone to talk out loud and you weren't able to accomplish it it was a matter of getting people to talk and and one of the reasons i give such credit to jody Cantor, meg tui and and ronan farrow is they made women comfortable enough to talk the rumor i had heard about the story i heard about from a producer when i was profiling harvey in 2002 was that at the venice film festival in 1998 the claim was that he had raped Rowena Chu and that Rowena Chu, led by Zelda Perkins, who, who was Harvey's assistant, Rowena Chu was a younger assistant who's just coming up, and they brought a, a case against Harvey privately. You know, they threatened to sue him and then he got them to sign non-disclosure agreements. I, I couldn't find Rowena Chu. I tracked down Zelda Perkins. She was in Guatemala. She refused to talk. And so the issue that, that David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and I faced, he had to make the decision, was, are we the National Enquirer? Are we going to, we, we, we think this happened. We, 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 we have one source saying it happened. The woman who it supposedly happened to wouldn't talk to us. Do we just go with that? I mean, it was an easy decision that we don't go to it. We're not the National Enquirer. We can't do that. And so we didn't do it. And, and actually what we tried to do, Harvey, thinking, because I had confronted him with, with these questions and he denied it. He said it was consensual affairs he had. I thought, he, he asked for a meeting with, with Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and me for some meeting, hoping to talk us out of writing about it. So what happened at this meeting, I, I said, maybe to myself, and I said to Remnick, I said, maybe there's a way of backing into this story and we don't need the woman to confirm it. If we can show that Disney, the parent company, or Miramax, his company, actually paid for these two non-disclosure agreements, total of almost $500,000, we have the story, because they probably committed a crime in doing that, and we could, we could expose him and his abuse that way. And the sec I said, Harvey, I need to see the canceled checks, and he yelled and screamed, and I said, I need to see it tomorrow, because tomorrow is Wednesday, and the we close on Thursdays. And so he came back the next day with his brother, Bob, and slid across the table two canceled checks. They were personal checks from Bob Weinstein for the non-disclosure agreement. So it was a personal payment, not a, not a corporate payment. And that was- You, you thought you could trap him. And, and, and you say multiple times that it's quite likely that, that Miramax and the Weinstein company were issuing checks on his behalf. Uh, you just don't have evidence of that. I don't have information that the company's paid. I know that Lance Murroff, the lead independent director at the Weinstein Company, which is the company that succeeded Miramax, believed that maybe some payments were mm -hmm. hidden in lawyers' fees or others to, to for, for basically to pay for non-disclosure agreements. And he had a huge fight with Harvey, which I recount in the book. He wanted to get his records from the HR, in the, and, and Harvey resisted releasing those records. And Lance Mark was convinced that maybe they would reveal who paid for the 
non-disclosure agreements. We've credited Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy and Ronan Farrow multiple times because they're the ones who got women to come out and say, this happened to me. It ha- that ha- Those stories were published in 2017. You wrote your story in 2002. I think even at the time, his power was starting to diminish. Do you think as accomplished as, as Jody Cantor, Megan Tuohy, and Ronan Farrow are, that they could have gotten this story 20 years earlier? Or is this just... Part of it was that Weinstein's power itself had diminished, and so people were well, more willing to come out. Happened. Well, a number of things happened. Uh, you had Cosby, Roger Ailes, people exposed for sexual predation um, prior to Harvey in, in October of 2017. Clearly, Harvey's power had waned. He was losing money at the Weinstein Company, um, mm-hmm. and that, that was, a, that was a, another issue. Uh, but having said that... Um, I don't want it to detract from the accomplishment of those reporters who made these women comfortable enough to talk. I couldn't in 2002. And and others, uh, Kim Masters, for instance, in in that period of time, we couldn't get women to feel comfortable enough to talk. What Cantor and and Tui did and Ronan Farrow did, they got women to talk in groups so they felt a little more secure. But but that they had the empathy and the ability to make these women feel comfortable. I take my hat off to them. Um, one thing, there's media stories within media stories about this. Uh, famously, Ronan Farrow had tried to run this story when he was still working for NBC News. NBC News didn't want to run it. He brought it to The New Yorker. You helped facilitate that. Um, in, in, in your book, you do go over sort of why... You speculate as to why NBC uh, Universal didn't want to run that story. And you say you don't know, and then you go on to list a whole bunch of speculation. Uh, you, you name five or six different people in the infrastructure, all the way up to Brian Roberts, the CEO of Comcast, which owns NBCU, suggesting why they might have reasons to do it. Um, for someone who's as careful and um, uh, methodical as you are, I'm surprised to see you just floating out different possibilities as to why NBCU killed the story without suggesting if you that you know any one of those is correct. Well, but what I said when I did that, I said, you know, I, first of all, I, I, I demonstrated that N- NBC's misbehavior and how they got it wrong when they claimed publicly that Ronan Farrow didn't have the evidence when he worked for NBC in July of 2017. And what I did was I went to the editor at the New Yorker. I said, what did Ronan Farrow bring to you? Of course, NBC was claiming that he, he only got this evidence after he went to the New Yorker. And in fact, he, he had it when he was in NBC. A. B, I demonstrated that Harvey Weinstein knew weeks before Ronan Farrow was told he was fired. Harvey Weinstein knew that Ronan Farrow's story would not run on NBC. So NBC has a lot to answer for. Then I said, so what explains NBC, as you're mm-hmm. saying, what explains NBC's position? And I said, I then point out that Andy Lack, the head of the chairman of the company, was a personal friend of Harvey, as was his wife. I point out that that Noah Oppenheim was a screenwriter, an ambitious one. I point out that Steve Burke, the CEO of NBC, you know, they often do joint ventures with other studios, including Harvey's studio. And Brian Roberts was a personal friend of Harvey's, part of what Harvey would used to call his, his, his Martha's Vineyard Mafia. Those are the four possibilities. I said, I don't know whether any of them had a hand in this. And I'm not saying, I didn't think I was, I was making a claim that they did. You thought I did. 
Well, you're you're very specifically not making a claim. You are throwing him in the speculation pool. Something that you see quite often in journalism. It's something that I don't see from you very often. You're very you're very buttoned up. So I was surprised to sort of see you lob that. I, I'll rethink that uh, based on what you're saying. But I, I, at the time, I actually thought I owed the reader an explanation. Why? What motivated NBC? And I don't know the answer to that. I said, but these are the things you know people would speculate on. And and this is kind of the undercurrent of of the book in many ways. Is is at Harvey Weinstein's peak, he had relationships throughout the power centers of America. Obviously, media, but government. Um, as well, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton is, is, is helping him at fundraisers. He's employing Barack Obama, helping Barack Obama, Obama's daughter get an internship. Um, he is as, he is as, uh, powerful a string puller as, as we've had in a long time. So lots of different folks at least agreed to look the other way in return for some benefit of working with him. Yeah. The other thing, you know, worth noting, uh, is, is, is his influence with the press. I mean, Michael Eisner, in the interview, who was the former CEO of Disney, Harvey's boss, said, acknowledged that Disney was basically had fear of attacking Harvey Weinstein because he had such power over the press. And, and you attack the pirate, the anti-establishment guy out of New York who's fighting the big movie studios. Harvey gets the edge in that battle. And he was very careful to court the press, to invite him to his screenings, to give him inside information and gossip. So he, part of his power was his power with the press. I do wonder if he, he would have that same kind of power if you fast forwarded him a little bit and more of the internet age. Uh, and he coexisted with more of the internet age where there are fewer gatekeepers or the gatekeepers have less power and blogs like Gawker can speculate up until they get destroyed by Peter Thiel. Um, and it's harder to tamp this stuff down. He, he, he's his most powerful, the the internet still exists when he's at his most powerful, but it's still when being able to get the New York post to cast a story in a favorable light is meaningful. And I think probably much less that power is, is worth much less today. I think that's true. And I also think that it is conceivable in, it, with social networks and today, uh, as prominent as they are, that rumors of Harvey's abuse might have gotten out and, and not been suppressed. What is the one takeaway you want people to think about as they're, as they're finishing your book this summer? It is a beach read. It's unpleasant, but it is a beach read. You can go right through it. I just want them to understand not one thing, but multiple things. One is who is this guy who, who created, not just created these movies, but abused not just women sexually, but people who work for him? I mean, throwing ashtrays at people and calling them idiots and humiliating them. And, and in one case, taking a, a, one of his assistants and dropping him off on 95 alone on, you know, like on a throughway. It's unbelievable. I want them to understand that. I want them to appreciate that people are complex, including an ogre like like Harvey Weinstein. He's not just an ogre. He's also a guy who had some talent and did some interesting movies. And I want them to understand the Hollywood community and the kind of conformity that leads people to say, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And and I'm not going to... And by the way, we see the same writ very large today with Donald Trump. You have people who refuse to take on Donald Trump because they're afraid of his power, just as they were afraid of Harvey Weinstein's power. That kind of conformity 
persists. It's not just Hollywood. It's not just politics. It, it's so many other things. And it, it's very troubling. Ken Aletta, the book is called Hollywood Ending. Thank you for taking time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Cataletta. Thanks again to Travis and Jelani for producing and editing the show. Our sponsors for bringing it to you for free and you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.